This morning I want to bring to you an introduction to a series which I'm entitling The Love Life, a study in the first epistle of Corinthians in chapter 13. And I would ask you, one and all, to read that chapter regularly during the next two or three weeks and on your knees ask God to speak to you from that matchless song of love. By way of preparation, however, we're going to look this morning at Revelation 2, 1 to 7, the reading we had together. And I want to speak on the tragedy of a lost love. The tragedy of a lost love. The book of the Revelation, chapter 2, 1 to 7. This message of the living Lord was addressed to the church at Ephesus. Now Ephesus was a church that was efficient in service, blameless in character, orthodox in doctrine, but mysteriously lacking in love. As the Lord of the church, the Savior commends her for all that he can see outwardly, the hard work, the hatred of the Nicolaitans, the testing of those of evil doctrine. But as the lover of his people, he sadly complains, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, that thou hast lost thy first love. My beloved friends here this morning, nothing has solemnized my heart this week more than to contemplate this complaint of the risen Christ. As he looks into your life this morning and my life, is he saying, I have somewhat against thee, that thou hast lost thy first love? Do you remember the day you were converted? Do you remember the exuberance of spirit, the warmth of love, the glow of experience? Do you remember how unaffected you were by anyone or anything? One thing only mattered, you loved your Lord and you loved him above everything else. What's your condition this morning in relation to your love to Jesus? No more subject is more solemn than to recognize this, my friend, that a church or a Christian can be efficient in service, blameless in character, and orthodox, fundamental in doctrine, and yet be lacking in love. Indeed, I go as far as saying efficient service, orthodox doctrine, blameless character, are but ashes upon a rusty altar. Unless there's the love of which we've been hearing in song. For we can give our bodies to be burned. We can give liberally of our money. We can throw ourselves into service. We can die at the stake. And it counters nothing if we have not love. And so as we look again at this passage this morning, may God deeply search every one of our souls for quite obviously the most tragic consideration in Christian experience is the tragedy of a lost love. I want to ask three questions this morning. The first one is this. What is the cause of a lost love? What is the cause of a lost love? Well, now an examination of the facts given us right here in this passage, together with the background of the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, 
We learn that the cause of a lost love is failure. Failure to fulfill certain simple laws which determine the development of love. These laws were part of the teaching of the Ephesian church. And no one can read through that epistle without noting specifically how many times the subject of love is referred to. The Ephesian church were informed as to the laws that determined a love life. A life of love to Jesus Christ. So they were without excuse and you are without excuse and I am without excuse. And how had they failed? How had they failed? I'll tell you, my friend, they had failed, first of all, to feed their love. They had failed to feed their love. Paul's prayer for them in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 was this, that Christ may be at home in your hearts by faith, that you, being grounded in love, might know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Love grows on what it feeds. And the food Paul prescribes was the knowledge of Christ through communion with Christ. And the church at Ephesus had lost their first love because they had ceased to hold their love feasts with the Lord Jesus. All love is hungry, desperately hungry. And the finer and purer a love is, the more it demands nourishment and suitable nourishment at that if your love shows signs of failing, my friend, it's because you've starved the love that was implanted in your heart when you first met Jesus. Communion with him is what strengthens and feeds love. When Jesus stands at the door of the human heart and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. And he with me, that's a love feast. That's a love feast. And Jesus longs to feast with us and to commune with us. I wonder, my friend, if you have starved your love because you ceased those love feasts with the Master. Our Lord, as I repeat, longs to meet with us. And I exhort you above everything else to keep those hours of communion with him. That's the way love is fed that's the way love is fostered. Even the ministry from the pulpit is in a sense pre-digested and second-hand. It can never substitute those hours we spend alone in his presence to feed on his word. To feed on all he seeks to impart to us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the atmosphere of prayer. And in the humdrum busy world, we've lost the art of meditation. We're caught up in the whirl and vortex of a fast-moving city. And we forget that he longs to meet with us. Jesus says, I long for those days when you used to spend time with me and I could see something of you. Now you're so busy, I can't even get a word in. You know as well as I do that divorce cases throughout our country today, smashed homes, divided families, often start that way. There was the day when the two lovers met. They told each other nothing mattered in the world like their love for one another. They became engaged, they became married, and the little home was set up. But sooner or later, 
estrangement came. There weren't the love feasts. There wasn't the communing together. There wasn't the keeping together. And sooner or later, the estrangement means the divorce, the smashed home, the ruined lives. Why? Love has been starved. And what is true in the human level is true on the spiritual level. You failed to feed that love by the knowledge of Christ and communion with Christ. How many of you here today can honestly stand to your feet and say, I met my Lord every day this week. I took time to be holy. I disciplined my life in such a way that with all the business demands, with all the home demands, with all the social demands of this week, I gave him at least one hour to meet with him. I recognize that I'm a creature of eternity and at the best may span the 70 years of life and then I'm snuffed out. I enter an eternal world and I shall never have the opportunity again of proving to the Lord Jesus in my life, in the flesh, in the body that I really love him. That phase of life is gone forever. The dollar has mattered more. The social contact has mattered more. The gossiping across the table has mattered more. A thousand and one things. But the thing that matters most has been neglected. Feeding your love for Jesus Christ. There was something else, my friend. Not only did they fail to feed their love, they failed to show their love. Love not only grows by what it feeds on, Love grows by reason of exercise. The word to them in chapter 4, 2 was forbearing one another in love. In chapter 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. In chapter 4, 16, listen carefully, edifying one another in love. Love not only needs food, it requires exercise. And one of the most amazing statements our Lord Jesus ever made when here upon earth was, Therefore doth my Father love me. Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. In these words the Savior seems to suggest that the very enjoyment of the Father's love was dependent upon the sacrificial outgiving of his own love. Love not only grows by what it feeds on. Love grows by expression. Love grows by exercise. Love grows by action and obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments, said the Savior. Don't sit down and analyze your emotion. It will dissipate. Don't sit down and ask yourself, do I love my Lord? You know what he wants you to do. Do it. And as you do it, so love grows and glows. Have you made it your business to love that unlovely person as you call her? As you call him this last week? Have you made it your business to seek to edify them in the things of God? Have you given some expression to the sacrificial aspect of love? Has your love cost you anything this past week? That's how love grows. Love for Jesus. Love for Jesus. Tell me, are you showing your love? Are you praying it out? Are you living it out? Are you preaching it out? What sacrifice what sacrifice is your love making? They failed to feed their love. That's why they lost it. They failed to show their love. That's why they lost it. They failed to guard their love. That's why they lost it. Walk in love, says the Apostle Paul in this same Ephesian epistle. 
But fornication and all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient. Chapter 2 and verse 4. Love needs food, yes. Love needs exercise, yes. But love needs also jealous watching and watchfulness. It must have been that at one point or the other the Ephesians had failed to guard their love. There are certain things which blunt the keen edge of love and we must ever guard against these things with God-given jealousy. Anything that lowers our conception of the glory and excellency and the virtue and wonder of our Lord must be condemned at once. Anything that lowers the standard of holiness to which he calls me must be slain. Anything that dims my vision of Christ, any association or friendship or even act of business that makes Jesus unreal to me must be cut right out of my life. If it's the eye, then the eye has to be plucked out, said the Savior, speaking of spiritual surgery. If the arm offend thee, cut it off. If the leg offend thee, cut it off. Don't let anything, don't let anything spoil your love. Guard your love. Every now and again in your quiet time, my friend, you need to ask yourself this question. Am I being drawn away imperceptibly from the Lord Jesus? Is my love as glowing, real, and romantic as it was when I was first converted? Is my heart so full of devotion to him that I feel as if I've been converted all over again? If not, what is drawing my heart away from him? What is spoiling what is spoiling and dulling the sensitivity of my love to him? You ask me, my beloved friend, what it is that has cooled your love off so that you're not as you were when you were first converted. I'll tell you. Failure to feed that love. Failure to show that love. Failure to guard that love. Love for Christ must inevitably pass through different phases, but it is never meant to lose its intensity. It's never meant to lose its ardor. It's never meant to lose its capacity for sacrifice. Have you lost your first love? A second question I want to ask this morning is this. Not only what is the cause of a lost love, but in the second place, what is the cost of a lost love? Just to glance at this passage, Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, I want to give you three suggestions that emerge right away. Look at it. It's very solemn. Verse 5, the first cost of a lost love is unutterable shame. Unutterable shame. Thou art fallen. Thou art fallen says our Lord. Yes, the Savior calls a lost love a fall. A fall. Understand that this church had not become immoral. It had not gone aside to false doctrine. It had not become idle. It was not even cowardly in the hour of persecution. Its failure, according to the Master, was a lost love, and his censure was, Thou art fallen! We talk about a fallen man, we talk about a fallen girl when they've been involved in some moral tragedy. Jesus looks from heaven and he says, if you've lost your love for me, 
if you've lost that betrothal love, if you've lost the warmth and ardor and intensity of that love you knew at conversion, you've fallen, you've fallen. Unutterable shame. The cost of a lost love is not only unutterable shame, my friend, it's unutterable grief. Jesus says, I have somewhat against thee. I have somewhat against thee. And I think the most painful feature of the tragedy of a lost love is to know that our Lord has had to point, point it out. That also he regards it as an offense to himself. I have somewhat against thee because thou hast lost thy first love. The lover of our souls has not only been bitterly disappointed, but he's been wounded, he's been offended. And I don't know how this strikes you, but to think of my Lord in heaven offended, to think of my Lord in heaven wounded and hurt, because I don't love him as I did before, is to fill me with grief, unutterable grief. And I know there are men and women here this morning and listening to my voice who must be men who have fallen Women who have fallen, for you're not like you were once. Your love isn't warm. Your love isn't intense. Your love isn't radiant this morning. You can't honestly look up to his face and say, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine for thee all the follies of sin I resign. If ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, tis now you can't. Doesn't that fill your heart with grief? Doesn't it fill your eyes with tears? But listen, my beloved friend, for those who are untouched by the shame of this, for those who are untouched by the grief of this, consider the unpredictable loss. Consider the unpredictable loss. The cost of a lost love is not only shame, not only grief, but unpredictable loss. I will come to you, says the Savior, and remove your lampstand from its place. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. These are terrible but necessary words. For a lampstand only serves a purpose while the flame of love burns brightly upon it. But let the flame die out and there's only one procedure open. It's to remove the lampstand. And while the removal of this lampstand in my judgment and interpretation of the word of God cannot and does not mean eternal perdition, it can and does indicate the loss of opportunity for service down here and the loss of opportunity for reward when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you want my honest judgment and opinion as to why there are churches spread right across the Christian world today, whether in America or any other place in the world, why there are churches that are derelict, social clubs, they haven't the life of God, they haven't devotion, they've departed from the word. Christ isn't central, it's a mere political organization, it's mere platform for expressing human systems of thought. The reason is, my friend, that the risen Savior has taken away the lampstand. Across the churches has been written the word, Ichabod, the glory hath departed. And if you want to know why there are tens of thousands of Christians who are Christians merely in name, there's no warmth about them, there's no glow, there's no real experience of Christ. They don't live Jesus. You can't see Jesus in their eyes. You can't hear Jesus from their lips. You can't feel Jesus from their presence. It's because the lampstand from their life has been removed. It's been taken away. 
The lampstand only serves a purpose while the flame of love burns brightly upon it. But let that flame narrow down to a smoking wick and the lampstand's removed. Jesus says it. These are his words. These are his words to a church that's lost its love. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Tell me, my friend, are you experiencing the cost of a lost love? Is there shame in your life? Have you grief in your heart? Does your service amount to nothing but empty noise? Listen, my dear friend, I plead with you in the name of my Savior. It costs, it costs to lose your first love. And you'll have to pay for it in terms of shame and grief and loss. You say, Stephen Olford, Stephen Olford, please tell me, how can my love be restored? How can I get back to my Lord? How can I experience what I did once when I first saw him and met him and trusted him and loved him? My friend, that is the second and third question I want to ask. What is the cost of a lost love? You know, shame, grief, and loss. What is the cure for a lost love? The Savior summed it up in three words which we put to you this morning, three pregnant words here on the very face of this scripture. Remember, repent, return. Remember, repent, return. Verse 5, remember, therefore from whence thou art fallen. Here is a call to compare your first love with your present condition. At first, nothing, nothing would divert you from the Lord. He was your very life. You loved his person. You loved his word. You loved his church. You loved his service. But now these precious factors are dull and uninteresting. And you must needs have your jaded nerves excited with worldly novelties. Remember, remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember the vows, the tears, the communings, the happy rapture of those days. Remember, remember, and compare your love then with now. And if you can't do it in the silence of this beautiful meeting place today, if you cannot do it as you listen to me on radio, when the service is over, will you steal away into your room alone and just recall and remember, call back those early days, Call back the rapture, those high mountain peaks of experience with your Lord. Those moments of ecstasy when you seem to be carried on the wings of faith and love into the very presence of God in heaven. Recall it all. Recall it all. And compare it with your cold, callous, calculating, indifferent, apathetic heart at the present time. Remember. Remember from whence thou art fallen. And then, my beloved friend, repent. Repent, says the word of God. Repent and do the first works. We preach repentance to the unconverted. We preach repentance to the sinner, but I'm coming to see more and more 
that the message to whom the message to whom we should preach is the Christian. The people to whom we should preach this message of repentance is the believer. Why right throughout this whole sevenfold message of the risen Christ to the churches scattered over that whole Asia Minor, the insistent word is repent, repent, repent. Repentance is addressed to the Christian first and foremost. No wonder Peter in his first epistle, chapter 4 and verse 17 says, judgment must begin first at the house of God. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And I'm persuaded in my heart, as some of us were hearing this morning over that radio discussion between Dr. Paul Rees, Canon Brian Green, and Mr. Erling Olson, that the greatest word that needed, needs to be said today is to the Christian church. As Kierkegaard put it many years ago, we must Christianize the Christians. How can we ever get men and women saved to be brought into a, an ice house? How can we get men and women saved to be brought into a worldly church today? How can we get men and women saved to be brought into uninstructed people whose lives are out of accord with the will of God or holiness? This whole idea of setting up great committees and making machinery that aches and groans with discontent and combat and fightings within the church of Jesus Christ today is wholly out of accord with any scriptural pattern we see anywhere from Matthew through to Revelation. Oh, the love that binded them together, that drove them into action, that exceeded far and above anything that's ever been done in the history of the church since simply because men and women knew what it was to love God and love Christ and love one another. Here this morning I'm asking my own heart as I'm asking yours, will you remember from whence thou art fallen and then will you repent? And repentance means an intellectual revolution. It means a rethinking. It means thinking back through tradition. It means thinking back through church machinery. It think, means thinking back through your own prejudices and desires. Back to first principles. Back to what the word of God says. Back to the message of the throne upon your life. And bowing to it in absolute humility and brokenness. You say, you say to me, but it may be very humbling and costly. Yes, my friend, but it's the way of restoration. It is the cure for a lost love. Such repentance may involve the sorrow of the soul, but let us not forget that godly sorrow worketh repentance. And it's only when we get back to the cross and we're smashed and broken that God will begin to burn in our souls again by the Holy Spirit the love we've lost. Yes, remember, repent. And finally return. Do the first works. Do the first works. True repentance must be confirmed by the doing of the first works. Christ will not be satisfied with mere feelings, mere tears, mere confessions of sin and regrets. You must return to the works and to the manner of life which characterized you before you fell. And such a return will not be easy. I'm not pretending it's going to be easy. Indeed, the Savior anticipates this very thing if you study this passage carefully. For he says, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What does he mean? 
He means that it's going to involve conflict and warfare, and believe me, it takes a battle to conquer a wandering heart. It takes a grim fight to regain the lost paradise of fellowship, fruitfulness, and fullness of life in Christ. But how worthwhile, how worthwhile. Repent, return, he says, and I will give you to eat of the tree of life. The lover of our souls, the lover of our souls wants to repeat the very thing that happened in Eden when Adam, our forebear, fell. Yes, he snatched at the fruit and so fell. Jesus says, I will give you your lost paradise if you'll only remember and repent and return. I will give you from my own hands the fruit of the tree of life and life will begin again. Life will be complete again. Does all this make you wonder why you ever left your first love? Does it make you ask yourself why you risked the cost of a lost love? But I ask you even more, my friend, does it make you want to remember, to repent, and here this morning to return? God grant you a return to your first love as you pray. Return, O holy love. Return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. Let us pray. In the silence of your heart, my friend, I want to ask you, will you recall just for one moment how far you have fallen, the romance and ardor and intensity and glow of that first love has left you? Why? Why? Will you remember? Will you recall? Then will you in honesty of faith and brokenness of spirit bow before the cross and repent? Repent? And then will you return to the first works by the power of the Holy Spirit? Will you seek to live out the life of holiness and victory and fellowship with Jesus as you knew it once before? O Savior Christ, Thou who art saying to so many of us here this morning, I have somewhat against thee, that thou hast lost thy first love. Wilt thou bring us back to full fellowship and restoration with thee as we confess our sins and claim the cleansing which thy precious blood affords because we ask it for thy name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.